Joining me today is Rosemary Fike. Rose Marie is an instructor of economics at Texas Christian University and a senior fellow of the Fraser Institute. She received her MA in economics at George Mason University and her PhD in economics at Florida State University. And her current research focuses on understanding the effects that different types of economic institutions have on the lives and status of women. To that end, she is the author of the Fraser Institute's Women and in Progress Report, which we'll be discussing shortly. And attesting to the quality of her research, she has received numerous scholarly awards and distinctions, including the Addington Prize for Measurement. And her scholarly work has been published in the Eastern Economics Journal, Journal of Economic Education, and Journal of Benefit Cost analysis, among others. She has published opinion editorials in news outlets such as U.S. News and World Report, The Hill, and Roll Call, and I'm very excited for this discussion with her today. So, Rosie, how are you? Great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining me. Uh, before we get into the details of your work and the economic freedom of the World Report and the Women in Progress Report, I'm curious why you chose this topic to focus your research on, the relationship between economic freedom and women's well-being. What led you to this research area? Well, it just seems like there was a gap in this conversation. So when I was in my PhD program at Florida State, I was working for James Wartney, who was the main author, who he is the main author on the Economic Freedom of the World Report. And we were talking about how a lot of the data just kind of implicitly assumes that men and women have the same access to markets. And that's just not true in the majority of the world. So it just seemed like there could be, you know, a sharpening of how we measure economic freedom and economic institutions. And then once we have a better, more precise measure of economic institutions and their quality, we can start, you know, exploring how these economic institutions affect women's lives. I like to consider myself a feminist and I like to consider myself, you know, I'm an economist as well. So I love markets and people who tend to care about gender issues and, and women's issues that are important to women um, often overlook the benefits that markets can provide women and the benefits that they have provided women um, historically. So I think that this is important work, important conversation. And I'm not the only one, you know, doing work in this area. There's great scholars like Jamie Lemke, who's also exploring similar topics. So, um, but there's not a lot of us. So it's an important conversation to have. <laughs> right, it's an important gap to fill. Um, so going, uh, moving on to the economic freedom of the world report. For those who are not familiar with it, it's the world's premier measurement of economic freedom, ranking countries based on five areas, size of government, legal structure and property rights, access to sound money, freedom to trade internationally, regulation of credit, labor, and business. And in the beginning, and you alluded to this, the report didn't have any kind of gender components, not until I believe 2015. And that actually created some distortions in the measuring of economic freedom and created an inaccurate picture in the case of some countries more than others by implicitly assuming that all members of a society have equal access to economic freedom. It did ignore the reality you mentioned that that is not always 
the case, unfortunately. It's not the case for too many women around the world. So before we get into what you did to fix it, what exactly were the problems with the index when you first encountered it? Um, I mean, it's it definitely measures many aspects of what we would think of as economic freedom. So kind of the hallmarks of economic freedom are, you know, personal choice, being able to voluntary, voluntarily exchange with each other, you know, enter into contractual agreements, um, you know, pursue the career of your choice, basically, you know, give you control. What, to what degree do you have control over your life? Um, but a lot of the data, when you're looking at, you know, marginal tax rates or the soundness of the monetary policy or, you know, you know, the, the extent to which the government is a major player in the market, it's not really capturing everybody's experience. We're just looking at that one number and we're assuming that 100% of the population has the same experience. So if I as a woman don't have access to markets, if I'm not able to own property, or if I'm not able to open a bank account or engage in a business transaction, um, then what good is it how, you know, how free, um, you know, how economically free we are, what good is it if I don't have that same access? So it wasn't, you know, an intentional oversight, I just don't think in the earlier days of the Economic Freedom of the World Index, I don't think there was a lot of data available to make that kind of adjustment. So it's only been in the past you know, 10, 15 years that a lot of international organizations that collect a lot of this data that we use have started to really think more carefully about how are women, you know, what are they experiencing? How are they able to access markets? You know, what are the laws as they apply to women? Are there extra barriers that women face that men don't face? So there's all this new data started coming out, I want to say around 2009, 2010. And so that just opens up a lot of possibilities for improving the index. Just like as people start to kind of expand their scope of, of uh, you know, diversity and inclusion, we might get more measures about other types of legal discrimination, like laws uh, based on, you know, gender identity or sexual preferences, right? If there's any other kind of discrimination, um, as people start having these conversations, there's a greater impetus for these international organizations to start collecting that data and measuring these things. So then economists and other social scientists can kind of get to work and you know, see uh, how, how this affects economic outcomes. Absolutely. So how did you go about correcting for that gender disparity in legal rights and measuring those effects on economic freedom? Yeah, so at first I started kind of sift, just taking a look at what data was available and what was out there. And I started gathering data from the World Bank. The World Bank has this great report of, that they're doing every year called Women, Business, and the Law, which looks at exactly this idea of do women face additional barriers that men don't have to face? Um, and so they, they started collecting this data and, and publishing it in 2009. Um, there's a few other organizations like the OECD had some gender uh, related data. 
Um, and so I started gathering all the data together and thinking about, you know, what variables are consistent with how the economic freedom of the world index is measured. So the economic freedom of the world index measures what we call negative rights. And so uh, the extent to which you have, you know, ownership over yourself um, and does the law protect you from somebody harming you or harming or taking your property? Um, so it's a freedom from, you're being protected from other people's infringement on your rights. Um, the other type of rights that we often hear people talk about are positive rights. And these are more what we call entitlements. So um, if we have, say, if somebody says, we have a right to uh, an education or a right to healthcare, um, that's more of a positive right because in order for me to exercise my right to education or my right to healthcare, it requires somebody else maybe to give up property or to, it obligates them to do something in order to provide me with that positive right. So I wanted to be consistent with the Economic Freedom of the World Index and only look at those aspects of the law that infringe upon women's negative economic freedoms, which when you're talking about gender issues, most of the data out there is actually measuring entitlements. So it's measuring, you know, are there laws that entitle a woman to have the same job when she gets back from maternity leave? Are there laws that mandate that, you know, in the constitution that there needs to be gender equality? You know, so it's, it's all of these, uh, a lot of the, the gender data focuses more on positive rights. Um, so it was easy to weed out a lot of things because to me, I think about positive rights as maybe these outcomes that we care about. And I wanna see how economic institutions influence our ability to obtain these outcomes that we care about. Um, and so I focused on women's ability to move freely um, so outside of their home, within their country, or travel outside of the country, um, or to choose where to live. I focused on their ability to own property, both movable property and immovable property, and to inherit property. And I focused on their ability to choose uh, their career path of their choice and to engage in commercial transactions. Um, and so all of those are related to the exact things that are being measured by the Economic Freedom of the World Index. And what changes did you see to the country rankings after you made those adjustments? Because I know some countries changed their scores rather dramatically, actually. Jordan and Saudi Arabia are at least two of them. But what changes did you see after those adjustments? Yeah, so I, a pattern started to emerge where there were a lot of countries in the Middle East and in Sub-Saharan Africa that saw significant uh, downward adjustments to their score. Um, so the, the gender adjustment that I do to the Economic Freedom of the World Index, I only adjust one of the five areas that you mentioned. I adjust area two, which is the property rights and kind of rule of law um, area. So uh, we we view women's restrictions on their economic rights as a rule of law issue because when we have these additional barriers, then we have a set of rules that apply to men and a set of rules that apply to women. 
and they're not playing by the same set of rules. So we consider that a, a rule of law issue. So we adjust just the area too. Um, so when we do that, as we mentioned, there were a number, country, a number of countries where their score is reduced and it kind of plummeted them in the rankings like Bahrain and Jordan. Um, so these countries have a lot of restrictions on a basic right that most economists view as essential to economic prosperity, which is property ownership. So, um, so these countries are ones in which women face significant barriers that men don't have to face when it comes to participating in the economy. Um, and so that matters from kind of a development perspective because just thinking about Adam Smith's work and how he talked about trade and expanding the scope of the market being the key to economic growth and development. The more people we're trading with, the more we can divide labor, the more wealth we can create. And so when you have all of these barriers on women's economic participation, you're really restricting the scope of the market in your society very artificially, and you miss out on all of the potential contributions that you know, 50% of your uh, citizens could contribute to the world. Um, so when it comes to you know, people do pay attention to these economic freedom of the world rankings. I know that there are people who make uh, financial investments based on how countries are changing in the rankings on the economic freedom index. And people think about, you know, am I going to open up a business? Think about what country do I want to locate my business? They pay attention to a lot of the components of the economic freedom of the world index. And so, Countries don't like it when they start to see their, their scores plummet. Um, and so it makes those places look less attractive in terms of where you'd like to do business. Absolutely, especially compared to the overestimate of their economic freedom before you adjusted to actually get the fuller picture of whether everyone in the country had access to economic freedom. Um, so as you said, it's clear that formal legal restrictions in the economic rights of women in many countries were preventing a significant portion of the population from engaging in mutually beneficial exchange. What were some of the negative effects of gender inequality in access to economic freedom? Uh, that we expect to see in those countries, not just for women, but for the broader society? Yeah, so the, you know, it's, it's a big opportunity cost to all of society, right? As you said, it's not just the women that are losing out, it's anybody who can benefit from trading or learning from these women or benefit from the, the contributions that they make to the market. Oh, and if there are any empirical uh, examples you can give on any of this, that would be great to know too. Yeah, so there was a study published by David Kuberas and Mark Tegnier um, in 2016 that actually examined, you know, what are the, you know, opportunity costs of having barriers to women's economic participation. And they found that these gender gaps in the law can cause an average income loss of about 15% of GDP, and this is for um, countries that have modest 
restrictions on women's rights. If you look at the countries that have more pervasive restrictions on on women's rights, uh, that loss is is actually a lot higher. Um, but 15% of per capita GDP is is a very significant uh, number for for most of us. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, okay, so those are some of the negative effects. What about some of the positive effects of women having access to economic freedom? And this ties really well into the Women in Progress report that you author. Um, I think women are an excellent case study for how powerful economic freedoms effects can be on human well-being in terms of uplifting a group um, that historically wasn't uh, able to access as much social equality or power in society. Uh, so what are the positive effects of giving women economic freedom equal to men? Yeah, so I talk about economic freedom as a basic human right. Um, so I think about things this way. So if you're a woman and you're in a tough situation, maybe you're married to somebody who's not so nice to you, um, and you live in a country where you have no economic freedom, you have no ability to travel on your own without being accompanied by a male family member, you have no ability to get a job without your husband's permission, you can't open up a bank account without your husband's permission or knowledge. Um, and so you don't have very many options to change your circumstance. But if you're a woman in that situation and you do have economic freedom, right, you can start to get a job. You can open up a bank account that your husband doesn't know about. You can start saving money and planning an escape route. And you can leave when you're ready. Um, without anybody uh, you know restricting your ability to you know leave the country or travel on your own so especially women who are in really terrible circumstances economic freedom can be a life raft for you so that's a very extreme example um, but more <laughs> basically uh, women who are living in countries that have a lot of economic freedom they live longer they have higher educational attainment rates. They have greater labor force participation rates. Um, and so you see a lot more contributions. Uh, their health outcomes are better. You know, infant mortality rates are lower and maternal mortality rates are lower. Uh, so if you think about a wide variety of what we would consider development outcomes that most people care about, uh, all of these things are better in places that have economic freedom. Right, and people can check out the work you've done on this by visiting womenandprogress.org. It's all laid out in some beautiful infographics. And you touched on this, especially talking about economic freedom just as a basic right, the right to travel, the right to engage in exchange, but some people think of economic freedom as dealing with a very limited sphere of life. And they think of other kinds of freedoms as inherently more important than economic freedom. They see that as secondary. Um, but economic freedom, as you pointed out, is actually much more all-encompassing than some people think. Uh, how would you describe 
the extent to which economic freedom and whether you have it or not defines your ability to choose the course of your life. I mean, economic freedom to me is all about the degree to which you control your own path in life, right? If uh, a lot of the countries that I focus on in the Women in Progress report, a lot of the countries that have severe restrictions, um, they have labor market rules that say women can't do jobs that require heavy lifting or women can't have jobs where you're working at night. Um, so you're taking options off the table for people. And so I think that this is important for a number of reasons. There might be goals that I have that I'd like to pursue when there's a legal barrier standing in my way um, that prevents me from becoming the person I want to be, right? That prevents me from making choices and learning about the person that I want to become, let alone, you know, pursuing uh, the, that direction. But I also think it matters from the perspective of, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. I think it matters also from a perspective of social norms. Um, so women, a lot of the gender inequality outcomes that people who care about women's rights and feminism that focus on, um, a lot of them stem from social norms, right? Um, the, this view, society's view about what is the appropriate role for a woman versus an appropriate role for a man, for a man. which jobs are appropriate for women, which jobs are appropriate for men, right? So this kind of view that we have um, of what's normal or what's right, and it's unspoken. And in order for social norms to change, you need to be able to challenge those norms. You need to be able to try to break that barrier, uh, you, know, you know, be a trailblazer. If you live in a country that has a labor law that says, you know, women can't work any jobs with pesticides. Belarus has, a, has this labor restriction, can't work any jobs that have pesticides. Maybe it is the case that most women are not gonna want to voluntarily enter into maybe the pest control industry, but there might be some women for which that's their best choice. That's their best option. Um, and so we're cutting them off from the best option, but we're also cutting off uh, women who might want to push boundaries and challenge gender norms. We're basically saying you can't do that. So in order for us to kind of push back on gender norms, the law can't stand in our way, right? That's just an additional obstacle. So I think it's both from a you know, direct impact on you might be cutting me off from my best path, but from a broader perspective, it, it slows down uh, the, the degree to which informal rules can change if the formal rule says you can't make this choice. I think that's a really interesting point about how even in the absence of a legal restriction, there may be informal social norms that place barriers between women and the careers they want or between women and the ability to own property, the ability to open a business uh, without a male permission, the ability to just engage in voluntary exchange in general. 
Uh, could you talk a bit more about the relationship between those unwritten barriers and how you account for those, if you can account for those when measuring economic freedom and the relationship between those barriers that are unwritten and the written regulations, uh, the legal restrictions, how do those influence each other? So it's a complicated and, and messy relationship, the relationship between formal and informal institutions. Um, I think that the direction doesn't go one way. I think that it is the case that we have social norms that have influenced the formal rules that we choose to adopt. But then once those formal rules are adopted, it becomes rigid, right? And the formal rules can be a very big constraint on our ability to challenge gender norms or, or any kind of informal rule. Um, I actually, in the Women in Progress report that I'm currently working on, uh, we get into a conversation. It does focus a bit on this idea of social norms. And so I look at the World Values Survey, which is a great survey that um, is conducted all over the world every couple of years, uh, different countries, that surveys you know, hundreds of thousands of people in each country and asks them questions that try to capture their beliefs um, and, and these informal attitudes that they have. And there are a handful of questions that get asked on the World Value Survey that I think capture something important about gender norms. And so there's a question that asks, in times of economic hardship, is it more important for men to have a job than for women? And so people who say, yes, I strongly agree, or I agree with that statement, they are expressing a view that the man should be the provider, that men should take priority over women when it comes to jobs. If jobs are limited, that the man should have priority. There's another question. Do you think that university is more important for boys or girls attending college? Is that more important for, for men or women to do? And if you say, I strongly agree, it's more important for boys than it is for, for girls, then that's another you know, uh, sign that your beliefs give priority to men over women when it comes to higher education opportunities. And then the last question that it asks is, do you think men make better political leaders than women? And again, if you say, yes, I do, I agree with that statement, then that's saying you think men should take priority over women in these political leadership positions. So through those three questions, I create a, a value. I create like a little index of, of gender norms. And I examine what is the relationship between economic freedom and this measure of gender norms. I look at it both kind of contemporaneously in the same time period, and I look at it in terms of past economic freedom and current gender norms to try to start the conversation about causality. Um, and in both cases, I find that greater economic freedom is associated with gender norms that are less likely to give priority to men over women. Gender norms where you, know, you have the belief that it is acceptable for women to enter into these spaces that they might not traditionally have entered into before. 
Um, and so I am finding that greater economic freedom helps us get that gender tolerance outcome that a lot of people who care about women's rights and feminist issues would desire. Um, and so I think that that's a really interesting conversation to have as well, because if it's gender norms that drive a lot of the inequality um, in terms of like labor market outcomes, um, the traditional way that feminists suggest we tackle those those labor market differences is to legislate it away, right? To mandate, well, we want this outcome to be equal, so let's just pass a law to make it equal um, without recognizing that you can't legislate people's gender norms away, right? You can't legislate um, how people feel. So um, there's been some interesting work looking at how um, paternity leave mandates actually benefit men more than women, especially in academia, right? So why is that? Well, because we spend our time differently. You can grant men and women, you can say everybody has to give men and women paternity leave or parental leave, um, but you can't control how they spend their time. So women spend, are more likely to spend the time taking care of the kid and the men are more likely to spend the time working on their research and using it as a sabbatical, right? And so these are things that are reflected in, in gender norms, our attitudes about how that household division of labor should be split, but they're not something that the law can say, we're gonna change these attitudes. So economic freedom and markets, that is one potential avenue that we can use to try to chip away at some of these, these gender norms that seem to be holding women back. Um, and that's a, an idea that is, has a long tradition in classical liberal thought. You know, it's a, you know, just another form of the do commerce theory that Montesquieu offered. This idea that markets have you know, a civilizing effect on our, on our behavior and they make us nicer and more tolerant to one another. So given those wide reaching effects, that result from giving women economic freedom. It does seem very important to have an accurate assessment of the state of women's economic freedom around the world. And what you found is that there are a lot of countries today that have at least one labor regulation that restricts the ability of women to work in the same occupations or in the same exact way as men. Some countries have laws restricting women from uh, working at night or the same night hours as men. Some countries forbid women from working in jobs deemed hazardous, like uh, with Belarus, as you mentioned. Some countries have laws that restrict women from working in jobs that are not deemed socially appropriate for women, definitely getting into norms there with the justification behind those laws. Um, and many laws restricting women's economic freedom do seem intended to shield women from work situations that might be regarded as more dangerous or to enforce those norms you were talking about of traditional gender roles. Uh, so what would you say to an opponent of women's economic freedom who argues that women shouldn't be allowed to work in hazardous jobs for their own protection and that uh, the traditional roles are good? 
Ooh, that's a tough question. I probably would have some choice words to say to that person. <laughs> um, but more seriously, I would say that, you know, if it's really the case that this is not a space for women to enter into, then why do you need the law to prevent them from entering into it? Right? If it's really dangerous and, you know, I care about myself and I care about my own well-being, and I certainly don't want to put myself in a situation that is too dangerous for me to handle. Um, I don't need a law to tell me that I shouldn't, uh, you know, try to lift more than I'm able, capable of carrying. Um, and as you said, a lot of these, these rules, these restrictions on what labor women can provide, a lot of it has to do with protecting us, um, specifically protect, protecting our ability to have kids and you know the have the jobs that require heavy lifting the you know don't work with hazardous chemicals and pesticides a lot of this is about you know saying it's justified by saying you know this might um, limit your ability to have children it might result in birth defects right so it's really treating women as a vehicle for you know, a vessel that, you know, treating them as a, a means to a particular end, which is, is really not treating them as, as people. I think what you said was very important that women don't have to go into any kind of dangerous profession if you give them the freedom to do so. They can always choose not to. Nothing about economic freedom even forces women to go into paid labor. Women exactly. have the freedom to be homemakers if they want to. And yeah, they, they have that option. Um, so what areas of the world would you say currently are doing the best and the worst in terms of women's economic freedom? And what kinds of trends are we seeing? What positive trends or negative trends? So the good news is there, at least according to my latest data, uh, there are 62 countries that we rank um, in the Economic Freedom of the World Index that have gender equality under the formal law. So that means they have no additional barriers that women face toward their economic rights that men don't have to face. And it doesn't mean that those countries are all you know, bastions of, of freedom. Right. Venezuela happens to be a place where women don't face additional legal barriers that men don't have to face. Um, but we would just say men and women are equally unfree in Venezuela. Right. But there are many countries where, you know, this is there. There are are no differences under the written law. Now, in terms of the places in the world where there are pervasive restrictions, it is very, very prominent in the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, some Southeast Asian countries as well. Um, but I wanna give a lot of credit where credit is due. Uh, Saudi Arabia has made significant reforms in the past couple of years. So in the 2018 data, so this would be the data that was released in our 2020 Women in Progress report, Saudi Arabia was one of the lowest performing countries. They ranked very close, if not at the, at the bottom, they were next to last on the list. Um, they had a gender equality score of 0.35, 
um, on a scale of zero to one. So this is very, very, very low, lots of barriers. And between 2018 and 2019, they almost, you know, they increased their score dramatically from a 0.35 to a 0.7 because they relaxed all of these restrictions that they had on women's ability to travel. So restrictions on their ability to obtain a passport, right, choose where to live, all of those were, were um, removed in 2019. And then between 2019 and 2020, they removed some additional barriers on the labor market restrictions. So there's no longer a restriction saying that women can't work at night or can't work in dangerous jobs. Um, so they got rid of a lot of those restrictions. And now they won't, in our next report, next edition of the Women in Progress report, you will not see Saudi Arabia listed in the list of worst performing countries because their current score is 0.88. So they've, in, in just a matter of, of two years, between 2018 and 2020, they have removed restrictions on economic freedom of women in significant areas. Now, what has happened as a result? Uh, the labor force participation rate of women went from under 20%. So it was 19.7% of the female population was either employed or actively looking for a job. Um, and by 2020, that's now a third. It's 33% of women. So just in two years, in just you know, removing some of those barriers to women's economic rights, they saw a 64% increase in labor force participation rates. Like that's massive. And does that mean that men and women are going to have the same, you know, pleasant experiences in the labor market in Saudi Arabia immediately? No, that's where social norms come in. But to see the labor force participation rate of women increase that dramatically immediately following the removal of those economic restrictions just is is amazing to me so i'm very it's a it's a place to watch right now i'm very interested to see how things change for women there over the next several years more good news is that um, gender equality under the law globally it's generally on a pretty upward trajectory so in the 1970s globally the score average score was about 0.69 so under 0.7 and now globally, it's about 0.87. So we've seen a pretty steady increase in gender equality under the law, a lot of removal of restrictions. Um, and so I don't wanna call out just you know, the Middle East and, and parts of Africa. The labor market restrictions uh, are, are pretty pervasive. There's lots of countries in Eastern Europe like Ukraine and Slovenia that have labor market restrictions. Um, there's a lot of places in Latin America that have them as well. Um, so, so those can kind of be the more subtle uh, ways to restrict women's economic participation, but they are still costly. Some people think that the best way to improve freedom for women is to just put women in charge of the policymaking process. And if that can't happen, organically, democratically, then uh, they advocate for gender quotas. And if you look at measurements of gender equality, there are some measures which 
we'll look at uh, female representation in parliament or whatever the political body is, and we'll put that into the gender equality measurement to such an extent that a country like Rwanda that has a mandate that 50% of its parliament be female, they automatically become ranked as one of the most gender equal countries in the world just based on those quotas. But what do you think about quotas and do they actually, what impacts do they actually have on gender equality in a country or women's freedom in a country? Yeah, so I think that you can't predict in advance how the quota is going to play out, right? So there's, pro there's probably several instances in which the gender quotas results in improved political outcomes, you know, however you're, you're measuring that. Um, but you can't, as I said before, you can't mandate gender norms to change. You can't, you, you can't, um, you can put a gender quota, but you can't ensure that there's enough women who have the experience to fill those gender quotas, right? And so I don't, you know, those are to me at odds with the spirit of economic freedom because you're taking away people's ability to choose who is the best person to fill that position. Um, and it's important to, to let people make the, those kinds of decisions and, and hire who they think is best for the job. Um, that's not, you know, that's not a rule that's fair you know, to men, actually. That's a rule that kind of infringes upon their freedom in a way. Um, so I also think it's important not to put those in our measure of gender equality, because I would like to actually know, you know, how does how does economic freedom contribute to women's representation in legislative branches, right? If if I'm putting that in my gender uh, equality measure, then I can't ask that question empirically because now it's in the index and it's in the outcome variable, right? And I can't ask, I can't sort those things out. Um, so, so there's many reasons why I kind of steer clear of the using those questions in the data that I use, but also because social norms are so complicated and you can't really predict how those informal rules are going to interact with something like a mandate. Um, if the mandate is very at odds with the culture of a society, I don't think the outcome is going to be very pleasant. I would agree with that. I'm completely skeptical of social engineering, as are you. And I also think that what you're measuring is more important to understanding the freedom of an average woman in a country. Uh, it doesn't necessarily matter to someone if they're in a dictatorship, whether that dictator is the same gender as them or not. It doesn't necessarily matter if uh, the politicians in charge of your country are very authoritarian, whether that's right-wing authoritarian or left-wing authoritarian. Um, it doesn't necessarily matter to you what their gender is or whether they look exactly like you. What matters is their policy positions, right? And whether they grant you more freedom over your life or whether they take things in an authoritarian direction. Mm -hmm. So I yeah, like I your mean, measurements a lot better. Thank 
thank you. I mean, I can see and understand the logic behind having some gender quotas because there is evidence in the experimental economics literature that you know women are less likely to take risks, right? They have different risk preferences, systematically different than men. Um, they're likely to spend money in different ways than men. So, so you are probably very likely to get some systematic differences in the policies that men and women prefer, right? So there, there is, you know, that justification behind doing it. I just don't know because our world is so complex, it's not clear that they're going to achieve the outcome that you'd like them to achieve. Um, but I think that that's where the justification for a lot of this comes from is a lot of the experimental economics literature, behavioral economics literature about men and women making different systematic choices. That's interesting. And you described quotas as actually a law that discriminates against men, which brings me to another question, which is by focusing on women's economic freedom. How do you deal with the uh, criticism that focusing on women's economic freedom is actually not the way to go because we should be focusing on how economic freedom benefits everyone. And by just focusing on women that could downplay the suffering of men who lack economic freedom or that could uh, it'd be sort of a myopic way oh. to look at things. Yeah, so I would say that in making the gender adjustment to the economic freedom index, that is a step towards looking at economic freedom for everybody, because the default position before was that we're just going to measure these laws and assume that everybody has access to, you know, they have, they experience these laws in the exact same way, right? That's by default, focusing only on economic freedom that you know is guaranteed to men. And so in making the adjustment, right, when we do the adjustment, we're only adjusting, you know, 50% of the population. We're not downgrading the rules that apply to men. We are downgrading the rules as they apply to 50% of the population. Um, so I think that this is a more inclusive view of, of what economic freedom means. It's um, challenging that default position that the way we measure things, um, you know, focuses on the male experience. And as, I don't think that that's a, you know, a maliciously intended thing. I think that there were not a lot of female voices in economics for a long time. And it takes having more female voices enter into a field to start to be more aware of the issues and the problems that are important to, to, to women. Right. And as you were saying, if you are only looking at economic freedom for men, you're not really looking at economic freedom. You're just looking at economic freedom for that one half of the population. So the literally hundreds of peer-reviewed academic studies that have found that citizens in economically free countries are wealthier, healthier, and happier than in countries with less economic freedom. Uh, those are very convincing. And the same is true when comparing countries that grant men and women equal access 
to economic freedoms uh, and that don't restrict the economic freedom of women. So what are some of the ways that economic freedom for women can make life better in a society and promote progress? Well, I think you can sum up. You've obviously yeah. <laughs> I think economic freedom, um, allowing more people to participate in the market, helps us make better use of the scarce resources that we have, right? And so, having women engage in buying, selling, you know, contesting of prices, contesting of different uses of resources, right? That's just you know going to help us have more people to divide labor with going to help us figure out better, you know, better figure out and identify what we have a comparative advantage in. Um, and it's going to help us make more out of the limited resources that we have. It is a wealth enhancing policy. And it's actually one, like if you start to remove the restrictions that women face that men don't face, it's, it's low hanging fruit from a policy perspective because it's not requiring governments to do something. It's not requiring them to allocate resources towards enforcing a particular thing. It's actually saying, you know, re let's refrain from doing something and maybe take some of those resources that you were using, making, you know, having a bureau that makes sure there's no women working at night maybe you could use those resources towards something more socially productive. And so I, I really do think it's a fundamental issue of you know, economic efficiency, right? It is inefficient to have these rules that artificially cut people out of the market, whether it's based on gender issues or some other margin of discrimination, it's, it's inefficient. Right. It's a very low cost way for governments to get a huge potential boost in their society's prosperity. Yeah. I mean, just look at, look at Saudi Arabia. I am so impressed with the change that has rapidly happened there. And I would be very surprised if it didn't translate to kind of a boost in, in their per capita income. That is really heartening to hear. Um, for, I, Final question, mm -hmm. given all of the benefits of economic freedom for women, why do you think that relative to their share of the population, there are relatively few women who are supportive of um, sort of free market economics or there are relatively few libertarian leaning women uh, compared to what you'd expect from random chance? Um, I mean, that's a good question. I think that, you know, part of it comes from like econ economics in general is a, an area where there's not that many women still, right? It's, it's one of the more, um, it's one of the kind of STEM fields that has a persistent and large gender gap. Um, so, so perhaps it's a, you know, lack of women to explore these questions. Maybe, you know, the average person who hasn't had any economics training might not understand, you know, the, the way the market works or the spontaneous order of, of the market. Um, but that, you know, I don't want to blame 
blame the women. I think, you know, part of it is also, I don't hear a lot of classical liberals, you know, tackling these issues. And maybe we need to, to do a little bit better about, uh, be a little bit better about um, the messaging that we're, we're putting out there, right? Uh, there's not too many people that focus on, here's the ways in which the market benefits you. Um, there are lots of feminists that criticize the markets. There's lots of prominent voices, um, you know, like Martha Nussbaum or, or Nancy Fulber that talk about how you know, women don't benefit equally from the market. Men get bigger benefits from the market. You know, I would say men also have better access to the market. They have economic rights that are not restricted in ways that women's are. So, you know, how can we have equal benefits from the market when we're not able to equally participate in the market? So, um, yeah, so I think that we definitely could be a lot better about talking about the ways in which um, markets really benefit women's lives. I think um, Steve Horowitz was really good at, he has a couple of short pieces for uh, the Foundation of Economic Education, FEE's website, where he talks about um, the benefits of, of markets for women in his book, you know, Hayek's Modern Family also kind of touches on some of these things. Um, and like I said, myself and Jamie Lemke and a number of women are, are really trying to, to get that message out there. But, uh, it's always, it's a hard question for me to answer because to me, it seems so obvious that freedom is something that would be beneficial to women and, and having more control over my choices and having more economic options gives me a lot more options in a wide variety of other areas. So the connection seems really obvious to me. And so I'm always puzzled myself trying to understand, you know, how is it that women or people who care about women's well-being overlook what the market can provide? Um, you know, the things even just like technological advancements, like the washing machine and the microwave, you know, even if gender norms are still dictating that household chores are mostly my responsibility, like there's market innovations that make those things so much less time consuming and so much less exhausting. Um, but we don't often stop and, and talk about those things. I would agree with that. I would say markets actually benefit women more than men, partially because they were coming from that lower starting point, right? When you are part of the half of the population that does more of the housework and in every country, um, it's still the case that women on average do more housework than men, then those sorts of innovations uh, that make housework less time consuming are going to benefit women actually even more. Uh, and I think that you're right that there is maybe a misconception out there that free market economics are about, uh, you often hear the phrase promoting profits over people, that it's the sort of cutthroat efficiency enhancing thing that puts human well-being to the wayside. But actually, if you look at the countries where human flourishing is, uh, you know, where people have the most access to being able to determine the course of their life, where they have the most wealth, the best health outcomes, 
the most self-reported happiness. These countries are disproportionately the ones that are economically free. And so I think that the work that you're doing, that other people are doing to get out that message about the relationship between economic freedom and human well-being is extremely important, especially for groups where maybe it's not talked about as much like women. Yeah, I agree. And, and thank you for that. <laughs> thank you so much for speaking with me. I really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please check out womenandprogress.org and follow the work of Rosemary Fife. Thank you so much for having me.